Pam was sexually abused as a child. She became a ward of the court at age nine and was in eight foster homes altogether. She started using heroin at 13. After losing a four-month-old child to SIDS when she was 17, she landed in a couple of rehab prisons. Then at age 24, she was sentenced to death. She spent 20 years on death row and was sentenced to die on March 24, 1996. But God had other plans for her life, including meeting my mom while she was on death row. My mom's sixth grade class wrote Pam on death row. Pam's Jesus story is incredible and you don't want to miss it. Let's do a background check on Pam Perillo Tice. Let's go! Have you or someone you know had your life turned upside down because of your past? Of course I have. Everyone does background checks now, which makes it hard to bounce back. What do you believe? I believe your background shouldn't hold you back. It, sh it should pay you back. This podcast will inspire you, motivate you, and inform you with everything you need to rise above your past and, and not be afraid to say, go, go ahead, check my background. My name is Jaden Gum. And this is Background Check. You already know. Let's go. You can check my background. I'm a forgiving felon, so tell them that I won't back down. No. You can bet I won't live in regret. It's time to earn some respect. You are tuning in to Background Check. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Background Check Podcast, the last one of 2021. I don't know when you're going to hear it, but you may hear it in 2022. So first of all, Happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. It's been a while since we've done a show, but uh, I needed the break. I needed refreshment, and we just needed uh, – it's very. it's been very chaotic. You guys know that we sold our, our old house, and then we were homeless for Thanksgiving. We were in a hotel, and then we moved in after closing the, the day before Thanksgiving on our new home. We um, we moved in the day after or the weekend of Thanksgiving, and so now we're in our new home. We've been here five weeks, and we're getting settled in. Uh, if it sounds a little echoey, it's because uh, my new office doesn't have all the sound padding and, and absorbing things in it yet. So uh, bear with me. But uh, I've missed you guys. Honestly, I've missed sharing with you from my heart. I've missed sharing stories with you, and that's why uh, we're not back full time yet every week. But I'm gonna do. Uh, I'm going to do this episode and then we're going to come back full, full headstrong in February with uh, love month. We're going to tell the story of some couples who were impacted by incarceration or anything else, addiction, just chaotic life and rose above it and share their stories. And as well as some black history month uh, on the, on those episodes in February as well. But I'm excited to be back. I've missed you. Uh, I know prison, listen, whether you're in jail or prison, um, or sitting out out in the world, you know, in a prison of alcoholism, drug addict, you know, drugs, uh, financial prison, whatever, emotional prison, depression, all those ways that you could be imprisoned. Uh, I know what you're going through, especially if you're incarcerated. I was incarcerated uh, in Dallas County Jail in December 1994 through Christmas, and then I was in prison for three years. So uh, I did three Christmases in prison. So I know where you are. I know uh, you can, I know how it can get, how the devil can play tricks on your minds, how the prison can play trick on your minds, you know, on your minds and, um, and just make you have a crappy season. And, uh, but I, listen, it's been chaotic out here, but we have taken time to remember the reason for the season, which is Jesus Christ. And, um, and so I want to thank you for being patient and giving me and my family some time off 
we're still in season two, but we're just taking some breaks through season two, some holiday breaks. And so again, we'll, we'll do some interviews in January and get back on the road to weekly episodes in February. I, I'm excited. I can't wait. So, um, uh, we also, uh, have been looking at some properties for our resource center. So keep that in your prayers and we're excited about that. But today, oh my gosh, today is an incredible episode. We went and recorded this just a few, a couple days before Christmas. And so our guest, Pam Perillo Tice, uh, is, is an incredible woman. She went to prison at, at 24, the third time and did spent 39 years, 20, 20 of that on death row. Okay. Until, and she even had an execution date, just two days before she was going to die. They gave her a stay and then they eventually changed her, uh, sentencing to life for one case and 30 years for another. And the 30 years ate up the life ate up the 30 years. And she made parole about two and a half years ago. And why she's special to me is because she was locked up with my assistant director, Michael Pugh, his fiance, Sheila was in the same uh, unit that Pam Perillo was in and she got to become friends with her there. And the other reason Pam is special is because my mom went in with the Mike Barber ministries in 1995 and 1996, and she got to visit death row. So my mom got to meet Carla Faye Tucker, Pam Perillo, Betty Beats, uh, Francis Newton, all those death row inmates. Um, and obviously Carla before she died. And I think one of the other ones were, executed as well, but my mom got to meet Pam and my mom was teaching class, sixth grade class at that time. And she had all of her class, her students write to the ladies on death row. And Pam wrote every one of them back individually. It was really neat because some of the ladies just wrote the class back, but Pam took the time to write. So anyway, so I'm, I'm today's story is about Pam. She's going to share her story, but there's a part in her story where we bring my mom in and they talk about that relationship that they built. And this is the first time they got to see each other out here in the world. And it's incredible. She's, um, there's a, there's a book out there about her story. And so I'm going to have that in the, uh, I'm going to have that in the show notes. Uh, the, the book, uh, is called salvation death row. And it's, uh, it's written by someone else about Pam. And it's really neat because we don't really talk about it in the interview much. And I, and I apologize to her after that, cause I didn't know there was a book, but we'll have a, uh, but you can get it on, you can get it on Amazon. And, uh, and then she's also been, um, appeared on death row. Okay. So the book is called salvation on death row, the Pam Perillo story. And it's really, it's really good. And, and what's neat is, uh, our, our laws in Texas don't allow her to make money off profit off her story. So she donates all the proceeds to pay Patriot paws which she'll talk about. So I, okay, I could just keep rambling about how much I love the interview, but, um, but I want to get to the interview and her story is amazing, but it does include Jesus and it includes, uh, volunteers that go into prison and pour their heart and soul into sharing the love of Jesus with these inmates. And, um, she's, she talks about her best friend, Carla Faye Tucker. And, uh, in fact, her, her cats, she's got cats and you'll hear the name of the cats. So I don't want to waste any more time. Let's get right to my interview with Pam Perillo. Pam Perillo Tice and Jane Davidson, welcome to Background Check Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right, Jane, mom. Everybody knows you've been on a few times, so they know you're my mom. Um, but but today is all about Pam. Yes, it is. And uh, you know, some people don't know how how do you what do you have to do with Pam? 
Well, we're going to get into that and talk about that later. But right now, we want to hear, Pam, we want to hear from you, your story. I know you. I know your name from the barbers, my mom, her sixth grade class used to write you. So, uh, and don't worry about the cats. The cats are okay. She has two cats. Na- <laughs> one's, one's name, tell us your cat's name. One name is Carla Faye, and the other one is Tucker, after and, Carla Faye Tucker. Which, who's a really good friend of yours, yes, right? Yes, my best friend. Yeah, and, and people, people probably know that name in, in, in the public more than they know your name. And also um, in the prisons, because they have Carla Faye Tucker set free in most of the prisons. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So tell us, tell us a little of your story. First of all, let's back up. Let's go deep into your background. Let's, uh, the, the cats are fine. They're fine. There's nothing in there that, that, that they can tear up. Um, so where do you, where are you from? Where'd you live? Uh, how'd you grow up? Brothers, sisters, what kind of family did you grow up in? Were you an athlete in school? Were you a cheerleader? You know, what, what did you, what did, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in California. I'm from Linwood and Compton. Um, I have four brothers and two sisters. Um, My mother died when I was nine. And after she died, my father started drinking a lot and sexually abusing me and my sister. Mm. I got taken away um, by the courts and made a ward of the court and was placed in eight different foster homes. some of them good, some of them not so good. Um, but um, when I got taken away, I really never had any more contact with my family for quite a few years. So I didn't really know my brothers and sisters that well. So they didn't keep you guys together through the foster no. care system? No, and they, they only took me. Um, my aunt took my older sister to Kansas. So when she caught my father doing whatever he was doing to my older sister, uh, my aunt took her, but she left me, so it focused on me. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in elementary school at the time. I told a friend of mine at school and she told her mom, who told the PTA, and they called the cops. So they came and took me away from my dad. So then I was placed in the system and in the foster homes. And uh, so it went from there. And like I said, some of them were good, some of them not so good. Yeah. But. Um, were you able to ever establish any kind of just friendships, regular, normal, junior high, high school life? Yes, I had a a good friend that I grew up with. Her name was Renee Coleman, and she was a very good friend of mine, and I stayed at her house quite a bit. And uh, so we we grew up kind of together when I was there. Yeah. And I had gotten contact with her several years later after I was grown. And she was married and starting her own family, so she's doing good. So now you went to prison when you were how old? The first time? <laughs> sure. I've been in prison three times. Okay, so, all right. Uh, I went to um, 
prison for this crime that I was in there for in 1980 when I was 24 years old. 24, okay, and you did 39 years? 39 on that, on years. On that one. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying you went to prison even before that? Yes. Um, in California, I, was, uh, I started using heroin when I was 13 years old, and um, they have a prison there called CRC, and it's for nonviolent drug related crimes and I went to I was found uh, unfit as a juvenile and tried as an adult when I was 17 and they sent me to CRC which I stayed there for 18 months and got out and then how old were you then I was 18 18 okay and uh I stayed out for a while and I started using heroin again and I got violated and went back on what they call a LP, which is just meaning violation. Yeah. And I went back and I stayed four months on my violation and then I got out again. And of course, started using heroin again. Um, one of the stipulations of my parole the second time was to report to a methadone program. And I did, so the day after I got out of prison, clean and sober, I reported to a methadone clinic and started doing methadone, and that just kicked it off. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't know where where in our thinking we think it's good to treat a drug addiction with drugs. Yeah, but and methadone is a lot more addicting than heroin. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know that. A lot it of people really don't know that. Is. So how bad did that mess you up? It got pretty bad. Um, I, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. When I I was 13, I met a man named Sammy, and we started, he was a heroin addict, and I really wasn't really big into enjoying drugs or anything like that, but to be with him and to hang out with him and all of that, I started using heroin, um, and I got addicted. And then it was on uh, after that. I uh, <clears throat> did what I had to do to keep my habit supported. And um, when I was 16 years old, I got pregnant. And Sammy went to prison for uh, robbery. So the whole time he was in prison, I went through my pregnancy. I took my daughter up to see him. He went to Soledad Prison. Um, and then he went to San Quentin, so I was back and forth taking Stephanie there to visit him. Anyway, when she was four months old, she died of crib death, Mm. and at that time, I was 17. I had never heard of crib death, so it kind of hit me really hard. I had just had Stephanie to the doctor, and he told me she was a perfectly happy healthy happy baby and then she died in her sleep so I didn't understand what that was about I went in the bathroom and cut both my wrists I cut one of them so bad the blood was shooting like a pump to the Mm. ceiling and uh didn't did a shot of heroin and which I had been clean for a while having her I wanted to get my life together yeah so they put me in a did um, you feel guilty I did. Did you because blame yourself? I did because I couldn't understand why she why she would die in her sleep. I yeah. didn't know anything about SIDS, so right. it 
was, um, I didn't know what was going on. But I went into a mental hospital for six months. I had my one of my arms in a cast because I had cut the tendons so bad. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> it, it, it just really, really hit me hard to lose her. Yeah. And uh, I said I would never, ever have another child. I did not ever want to go through that again. But five years later, I got <laughs> pregnant again. And uh, I had a set of twins, and uh, they both weighed two pounds each, and one of them only lived 29 days. Mm. He had spinal meningitis, so he, uh, he died in the intensive care unit. And then my other one is my miracle child, and that's Joseph, who's yeah. my best friend today. And so I'm just grateful I have him. Yeah. It was a hard experience, but a miracle came yeah. out of it. <laughs> How old is Joseph now? He's 42. Awesome. What, where does he live? What does he do? He lives in Katy, Texas, and he puts high-tech computer systems in big companies. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so what? let's talk about what happened and how you, how you ended up into into prison for 39 years now. Where were you in that time of your life? What were you doing? Were you still strung out? I was actually, yes, I was actually um, dancing at a, a new bar in uh, California, in Whittier, California. And um, <clears throat> I started shooting heroin again. And I met a girl there and her husband had just gotten out of San Quentin and we all got together and we started shooting dope. We ended up doing a robbery together. And the next day the cops were showing my picture all over the neighborhood looking for me. So Mike and Linda left and was on their way to Florida and they called me when they were in Tucson, Arizona. Asked me if I wanted to join them. And I said, yeah, because I was running from the cops. I took my son to my father's and my stepmother's house and told them to keep him because I didn't want the state catching me and taking my son and putting him through the system like right. I was. So I took them, took Joseph there and left him and I flew out to Tucson, met them. We ended up hitchhiking um, to Florida ended up in Texas where we, <clears throat> excuse me, robbed and killed two men during the robbery. Um, and uh, we got arrested. Actually, I turned myself in and um, waived extradition, came back to Texas, got tried, and was given the death penalty in 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, my co-defendant, his wife, turned state evidence against me and him, and Mike also got the death penalty, and she got five years probation. Uh, wow! As part of, I guess, for the deal she made. Yes, and um, which was kind of crazy to me because she had more to do with the crime than I did. But it's one of the one of the. I think one of the main uh, 
problems with our justice system is that part right there is the the willingness of the prosecution to make deals just to just to get things done and uh where the the ringleader gets less time than yeah. the other people and they and they both made me out to be the ringleader of the whole thing which yeah. was okay um I, at the time, didn't really know anything about the death penalty. I thought when they gave it to you, they just took you out and lynched you to a tree or something. Yeah. Um, you didn't know he was going to have to sit and wait for a long time? Yes. I went to death row in 1980. Uh, my case was overturned on a jury selection error in 1983. I and, went back. And what did that mean? It means that um, because there was an error during trial, they overturned my case, and they sent me back to court and tried me again. And what was the result of that? I got the death sentence again in 84. What did that do for you to know that you'd already been sentenced to death once, and then, and then you had a chance to go back and get retried, and then you got the same result? Well, I got the same results because the girl that was involved in my crime was the star state witness against me again. And the lawyer that I had was actually her lawyer hmm. in her whole uh, incident thing. Yeah. And uh, so when they put her on the stand, he treated her as a friendly witness. Yeah. And every time I say, Jim, she's lying, ask her this, it's okay, Pam, don't worry, you know, and just pat me on wow. the hand. And um, she stood up on that stand and said that she believed that her, that I and her husband both should die. And it was just bizarre because she had more to do with it than I yeah. did. But anyway, you know. So did you, at, I mean, you'd already been locked up at what, what, four years at that point? Yes, I was on death row for, from 80 to 83. What did that do to your mental state? I was pretty numb back then. I was young and pretty numb to everything that was going on. I really didn't, I learned a lot about the system and the courts. Through my second trial, yeah. I learned a lot. Um, when I went back to death row, I was there for a few more years, and I was given an execution date. And at that time, my family had paid for an attorney to file an appeal, and we lost. And, um, and after... I lost this attorney. Uh, I didn't want to ask my family to put out any more yeah. money for attorneys. They had just paid ten thousand dollars to this guy for this appeal, and and so um, I wrote to the state bar, yeah. and they put me on a list for attorneys and. A great big law firm out of Texas, I mean out of Houston, called Baker and Botts, took my case pro bono. Oh. And so I had these amazing, wonderful attorneys, and a lot of the people that worked on my case were law students 
doing internships at this law firm and they did the best research and then I had a ex Fifth Circuit judge working on my case who had retired from the Fifth Circuit and went back to Baker and Botts and um, so I had these really good attorneys and through their research they found that my fall partner was actually having an affair with my attorney oh gosh and was staying at his house during my trial when she was testifying against me and he was my attorney wow so my case 12 years later got well i had another execution date before this and i came two days away from my execution before I got a stay. I was um, supposed to be executed Sunday, and um, that night I was reading my Bible, and I was reading through the daily bread where you read through your Bible in a year, and I was on my fifth year of doing this through the daily bread. Anyway, Thursday night I was reading the Word, and um, I was reading in Psalms, and I got to Psalms 102, chapter 102, verses 19 and 20. And the Word said that God looked down from his sanctuary to view the earth and to hear the groaning of the prisoners and to release those which were condemned to die. And the next morning, I got a stay of execution. Wow. So I just knew that God wasn't through with me yet. Yeah. And that he had a reason for me to still be here. Yeah. And then my attorneys called and told me that the Fifth Circuit had overturned my case and gave the state 120 days to either try me retry me or let me go and I went back to Houston and the DA felt that because my case was so old and actually Mike Barber was there with me and Deanna and I had five attorneys and the DA just felt like because I was where I was at in my life at that time, and I had such good support from the community and Mike and everybody that um, she wasn't going to do another trial. Mm -hmm. So she dropped my two capital murders down down to two aggravated robberies and gave me life on one and 30 on the other. Wow. And I went back to prison and was put in population where I felt like I was kind of thrown into a lion's den after being locked in a cell by myself for 20 years on death row. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's stop there. Were, Were you already serving the Lord at this point? And if you were, when did that happen? When did you give your heart to the Lord? I gave my life to the Lord in 1980. So was that like in county, in county jail, or? It was right before I went to death row. Okay. Yes, it was in the county. 
All right. So you've already been serving the Lord, growing in the Lord, and all this stuff has been happening. Two death row sentences and then all this stuff and then the, the favor and the blessing. So, and now you're, after 20 years of being in a cell by yourself, now your faith is being tested and tried by being around a bunch of people now. Yes. And what kind of culture shock was that for you? Spiritually and just emotionally, mentally, physically? It was it was strange because I was very well known and it was very publicized at the time. So um, people would point my f- their finger at me and say that's her. And at that time also, Linda Strom had came out with the book Carla Faye Tucker Set Free. And I was in the book, so everybody knew who I was. And um, I got a lot of positive, and I got some negative um, results from all of it. Um, Never by any offender. They were all very supportive and very nice. But there was some officers who believed in the death penalty and didn't feel like I should have gotten off and that I beat the system and... um, pretty much very well let them let it known to me how they felt and um so it was a rough journey at first were you ever physically abused by the by the guards or just no vocally verbally no they would go in and search my cubicle and so they would legally abuse you yes (laughs) they do it their way (laughs) yep but that's how they that's how they get back at you is they they shake your cell down they annoy you they wake you up at night Tell, tell me your TVC number. They they know how to get to you. Yeah. Well, I kind of went off on them at one point because I woke up and there was three officers standing over me and uh, just staring at me in my sleep. And I said, if you're going to look at me like I'm a monkey, throw me some peanuts. You know, oh, I'm not oh, in the wow. zoo. Uh, it was pretty hard at first. Um, I felt like I was under a microscope. Uh, everything I did, you know, I went all that time without getting a case in on death row, and I they kept writing me up for stupid stuff, like going to the trash can in my nightgown or leaving my hot, hot pot plugged in when I went to the bathroom or giving my neighbor a burrito, passing contraband, Mm. just any little thing that they could write me up for. So I got 12 cases. Never in 39 years did I get a major case, but I got 12 minor cases in the whole time I was locked up, and they were really for stupid stuff. Wow. When I got off death row and went into population, I went to the Lane Murray unit, and they had a faith-based dorm there. And it was one of Carla's dreams to have faith-based dorms in the prisons. And so Linda pursued that dream and started the faith-based dorms. Well, I applied for the faith-based dorm, and um, it was in F dorm, which was mostly trustees, and... They had a rule that if you were convicted of a capital crime in the past or recent, you couldn't go into death row. I mean, you couldn't go into the faith-based dorm. So I had to really fight that rule. And finally, we got it overturned, and they accepted me into the faith-based dorm. 
So good. Which I stayed 18 months in the faith-based dorm. And when I went in there, I said, I'm not going to listen to any secular music or read any secular books. I'm just going to focus on the Lord. And, and I had a wonderful 18 months in that faith-based dorm. And I met a lot of wonderful sisters in there, a lot of different ministries that came in. Okay, speaking of ministries coming in, uh, and, you've <coughs> already, and you already mentioned Mike Barber, Mike and Deanne, mm-hmm. um, and the Mike Barber Ministries. So uh, I know my mom was a part of that in yes. the mid-90s at some point. So, And that's how she knows you, and that's how she met you, is when she went in with them a couple summers. Yes. So uh, let's talk about let's talk about that. Okay. Um, mom, I want to bring you in, and uh, because... You know, you, you don't say no. Uh, did we bring that Bible? Yes, we have the Bible. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna let y'all talk, and I'm gonna go get that Bible. It's right over here. Right over there. Okay, but um, you went in with Mike Barber a couple times into these units, and so just talk about talk about that opportunity and what it meant to you and the effects it had on your class. And you were teaching a sixth grade at one point. You know, what did your what did your What did your class think when you said to them, "We're going to write these inmates," you know? And did, did did any parents come up to you and say, "Hey, why are why is my child writing a prisoner?" You know, uh, my child's talking about death row. Why? Why? You know, did you get any flack from from parents back then? And and um, you know, talk about what y'all did first. You know, going in, how that impacted you, and and then we'll let Pam talk about how how what you decided to do with your class impacted her. Well, first of all. I could not believe that they were letting us go into death row. And it was, I think, Deanne Barber was the main one that instigated uh, us going in. And um, it was an experience I'll never forget. I couldn't believe I was there. But I knew it was God-ordained. I knew that the people I was going to, the girls I was going to meet in there were uh, going to be uh, dear to my heart, and which they all were. And when we first went in, there were four uh, four girls, and uh, the main thing that I was just so blown away was they led in praise and worship, and here these four girls that in, in death row, which they called life row, right, Pam? Yes. And uh, and I thought, oh my gosh, I got goosebumps just thinking about that. But uh, uh, they were leading praise and worship. They were lifting their hands to God. Here they were on death row, and singing praises to God and of course I think a few of them were crying and I think Carla Faye she she did and Pam did and and um, it was just a very moving um, time in my life and uh, uh, I, I, we went I went in two times with Deanne and one time we went in and had dinner with them and the girls had their own garden right Pam yes. they had I can't even remember what it was now but uh, we ate these vegetables from their garden and I guess we ate something from the cafeteria too I don't know but uh, we had the best time and uh, the only thing that we could take when we went into the prison was our bible and our driver's license and then we had to check our driver's license uh, well I think we had to leave it too but we got to carry our Bibles from, you know, when we went in. And all the girls on death row signed my Bible both times that I went in. And we have that Bible here today with us. But uh, 
um, when we when I went back, I don't know who instigated. I think maybe I asked Pam if she'd want to write my class, or she asked me if she could write some letters. But anyway, we started communication with the girl with the kids in my class, and and I taught sixth grade at the time, and we. Uh, all sat down one day and wrote Pam. Every student in the classroom wrote her a letter. And so here, a few days later, maybe a week or so, well, we get a big old envelope, and I'm thinking, oh, Pam wrote, wrote a letter to the class. Well, I opened it up, and Pam had written a letter to every single student that had written her. She had written that student wow. and, and answered whatever questions that they had asked or whatever comments they had made. She responded to each student. And you talk about an impact on those students' lives to think that she took the time to write each each student a letter. But she did that. We got several letters uh, mm-hmm. from you and uh um, which was such a such a blessing to me as a teacher, but the kids just absolutely love it. And I never got not one negative comment uh, from any parent any time. It was just all positive, and I knew that it was God because you know parents can be pretty um, you know you know pretty unruly sometimes when they if they're you know, if they think their child is yeah. writing, writing to someone on death row, you know. Yeah. But uh, they were all just uh, godly parents, apparently, and they just thought that was the greatest thing in the world because the kids would come home talking about Pam, and uh, and they kind of got to know you mm-hmm. through me because I'd talk about you and the other girls and, and the different things that y'all did. And you, you know, y'all were making the best of your time. I mean, y'all did crafts. You did had your garden and learned all those praise and worship songs. Yes. I mean, I mean, when you were in, when you're standing in death row with four inmates and they're standing there lifting their voices and their hands to God. I mean, it is a very moving, mm-hmm. emotional type thing. Yeah. yeah, we did a lot of sign language back then. Right. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. I remember, especially Carla. I think Carla Fay was. Mm-hmm. Of course, she was so outward and open. Everything she did, yes. you know, was kind of. And she kind of, loves sign language. Yeah, I think she did it. But, uh, okay, so I have the Bible here, and I want to. I want to mention some names. Okay, first of all, uh, Pam signed it in on April eighth, nineteen ninety five, and then she also signed it in uh, April on April thirteenth, nineteen ninety six. Mm-hmm. Listen to what Pam wrote in 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 ninety six. I sure do love you all. God is so good he has blessed my life so much with all of you and i want you to know i hold you all close to my heart i'll be coming to see you all soon (laughs) i'm believing god is going to open that door so all of you keep praying with me keep your eyes on the lord god bless you your sister and forever friend pamela perillo um (laughs) let's see of course carla Fay signed it twice and then let's see francis newton do you recognize yeah. her that name? Oh, yeah, Frances. Yeah. Uh, oh, the, the pic- there's a picture of her. That's her? That's okay. Just, yeah. And then uh, Betty. 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 Betty Beats. Yeah. Yep, Betty Beats. Wow, I'll be coming to see you soon. Yes, and look where I am. Better late than never, right? <laughs> Better late than never. I would like to I would like to post this on my Facebook and and put a uh, call out to anybody that was in the sixth grade class oh, that yeah. year to, we got to you yes. know um, of course I know I told Deanne that uh, you know 
the last time I had planned a trip down, I had told Deanne, I said, I'm going to see Pam. And she just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Mm. Then, then I didn't end up going. But now that I came, well, I can tell her again. Maybe she can contact Brittany and tell me some of the names. I can't even remember some of the names mm-hmm. of the students that were in that classroom. But I'd like for them to see your picture and know that you're out and, and still think yeah. about those letters that they wrote to you. And, of course, you wrote to them. And uh, I uh, know. Pam, maybe, how, what kind of impact did that have? getting letters from all those kids because I know when I first got into prison my mom was working for a retirement center and the first Christmas I was locked up uh, that whole week that whole week yeah. my name was called out for mail call a hundred times yeah. and everybody thought that I was a celebrity because she got she got a hundred old people in a retirement <laughs> center to write me and send me Christmas cards. Aww. So I know how it made me feel. It made me feel awesome. How did that make you feel when you started getting letters from all these sixth graders? It was an, an amazing experience. I remember um, just the things that they would say to me would touch my heart so much. But I think the thing that touched me the most was I had that execution date, and they all wrote a letter to the governor saying please don't kill wow. miss pam please let miss pam come home and it was just an amazing feeling that that they would take the time to do that of course i didn't send those letters to the governor because he probably would have threw them out but um it was an i just loved writing those kids and getting to know them and i remember one time i needle pointed each of them a little cross uh, bookmarker and um, I wanted to reach out to each of them individually and let them know that they were all special individually and not just as a group but Man, so good. they meant so much to me you know no no judgment just pure love and I just loved uh, getting to know Jane and and her even opening that door for me to write to those students um, was an amazing thing for her to trust me to uh, make everything turn out the way that it did. And Jane has always just shown so much love toward us Mm -hmm. and it meant so much for her to come in. And I remember we had, made burritos that night that you came in and took the tomatoes and the banana peppers and and all of the vegetables out of our garden and made those uh, burritos for them and and we had an amazing warden too to even allow the yeah because that yeah because that would not normally happen Mm -mm. at any unit so Mm -mm. but they let us come out and go into our day room and I still call my living room a day room sometimes, <laughs> so I gotta go to the day room. Um, but uh, it was just a, a very touching uh, experience, and for us to get together now after all, unbelievable. These years, yeah, what is this like? Unbelievable. It's just yes. I mean. Well, Pam looks younger than she did then. <laughs> uh, probably I was so stressed out in there. Uh, You're beautiful, Pam. Well, I, I'm so glad because you also know a mutual friend named Sheila. Mm-hmm. And uh, Just met Sheila, and that's how all this came about. I know. Sheila mentioned she was, you know, I can't even remember how she said, 
well, your you name know, brought I came up, in. But... I came into the Murray unit. Um, I think we figured it was in either 2013 or 2014, and I spoke. And Sheila remembered forgiven felons, and she, so she contacted us when she got out. January, she got out on my birthday, January 21st. Mm-hmm. She got out in 2020, and then she got involved with the forgiven felons. And then she started dating, you know, our assistant director, and now they're engaged. And and uh, and, and it somehow, some way, I don't remember how we were talking about the fact that she knew you. And, well, it was at and, the party at your house, and uh, and she had mentioned. Um, being in the unit, what was the unit y- y'all were in together? Lane Murray. Yeah. Okay. And I guess that rang a bell with me, and I said something about Pam. or I don't know how it broke, but your name came up. And I said, oh my goodness, you knew Pam? She said, yeah. Well, I think we were talking about Death Row in Mountain mm-hmm. View at first, and then she, she led into, yeah, one of my friends at the Murray unit was on Death Row. And then that's when she mentioned Pam Perillo. And right. we were like, what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so, because didn't y'all call? Didn't you, didn't you call yeah, that day? Yeah, I called, that called day. and y'all yeah. talked? Yeah. yeah, we did. So, so Sheila, Sheila had texted me and said, I know a mutual friend of yours. And um, then Jane called me. So it's funny because Sheila... And I and another friend that was at the Lane Murray unit, we all got together not too long ago, and we made prison food for the whole family. We took a blow dryer and a paper sack and fried some (laughs) chicken nuggets, and everything we made was from prison food recipes. We made a cheesecake and... um, It was amazing, and their family said, I can't believe you guys eat like this in there, and... It was very good. Yeah, so. yeah, I bet, I bet, man. Some people, some of some of the guys could make some killer cheesecakes. Yes. And then yes. when I got to uh, when I got to the Lockhart unit, it was a private unit, and they had microwaves, and so they they elevated their cooking to another level because <clears throat> now you can now you can you could cook stuff in the microwave and heat stuff up and do things a little differently than just the hot pot and the chip yeah. bag and all that. So, so yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so. Let's talk about the impact that these volunteers and these ministries had on, on your life and the inmates' life. I mean, obviously, Mike Barber and the Barber family has been friends with us for a long time. You know, so as soon as I got out of prison, I went, I went back in. And so I, I know and I see the, the firsthand the impact they have. But what about you? How did, how did it mean, what did it mean to you to have Mike stand beside you at, in court that day, right? You said they were there in court. Yes. They don't do that for everybody. No. And Mike was actually going to get me an attorney. He wanted a free world. I mean, a a paid attorney. And I told him that I was very pleased with the ones I had for pro bono. They were awesome attorneys. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I met Mike in 1987. He was actually with the Bill Glass ministry when right. I first met him right. and playing for the Houston Oilers. <clears throat> so I met Mike and Deanne a long, long time ago. Mm. But Mike got so involved in our lives on death row that it was um, – he was always in there, always bringing people in there to meet us. And, um, you know, he got 
involved in my son's life. Uh, he actually videoed my son graduating from high school, mm. and I got to see it. Wow. Uh, he helped my adopted mom financially, putting my son through private school his whole life um, when he was younger. Uh, He's always been in private school, and then he went to Baylor for a year and transferred to A&M, and that's where he graduated. But Mike has always been a part of my family's life and um, uh, had a huge impact on our lives. And uh, he was what kind of impact did he have on the units when he came into the units? Uh, obviously, we already talked about what what impact they had on death row, but um, when you were in general population, don't know if you, I mean, obviously, I think you probably heard them maybe at the Lane Murray unit or other units that, what kind of impact did they have on all the inmates, just the general population as a whole? Oh, God, when Mike would come in, he'd have posters all over the units of different celebrities, different um athletes he was bringing in it was a very big thing he always set up a tent at the mountain view unit and uh even when i was still on death row and mike would set up the tent out in the field he ran cords all the way over to death row so we could watch it live on our tv oh, wow. so we were a part of everything and um when i left Mountain View and I went to the Lane Murray unit, I was actually able <clears throat> to go to the services mm. in person in population. And back then, uh, Isaac was preaching. Brandon, Isaac Petrie. Yeah. Brandon was pe- preaching and his daughters were dancing and, uh, you know, Mike and Deanne would always come in and do interviews and special Bible studies. And it was awesome being a part of it in person out there in population, yeah. you know, so. So when you made parole, you've, you've been out for two and a half years now. Mm-hmm. And you total on this last sentence, 39 years. I did 39 flat. So um, what, when you made parole and you got out, you, you lived with somebody. Tell us about that. And. How, how much of a shock it was for you and transition and, and uh, learning curve. Because um, life well, was very different after 40 years. It was. And actually, I had pretty much accepted the fact that I wasn't going to get out. Um, I had been up for parole, I think, seven times. And... Um, one of the commissioners told me, well, Perillo, if you never go home, just thank God you're breathing. And I knew I wouldn't get out with him. Hmm. And really, at uh, when I got this last attorney, Alan Place, out of Gatesville, uh, I had accepted a plea bargain of life on one and 30 on the other. And it was supposed to be running concurrent well the attorney that I got said it wasn't it was stacked and that I would have to parole out on one before I even started the other Mm. one well at that point I had just accepted okay this is going to be my life and um, 
And then I got a letter from him saying that he got TDCJ to have my life eat up the 30 and I was just doing life and I was eligible for parole on wow. that on that life sentence. And even when I saw parole, again, I'd seen him seven times and got set-offs and every set-off was because of nature of crime and past criminal history. Yeah. And um, my nature of my crime was never going to change and my past was never going to change. Yeah. So they were going to keep putting me off for that. So um, this new attorney that I got, he uh, knew the parole board. He actually got a meeting set up where my adopted mom, my son, uh, Shannon and Lewis, the people I paroled home to, uh, had a face-to-face with the commissioner. And when they did, they were in there for like 45 minutes with the commissioner talking about me and the changes I had made and the things I was doing in prison. And um, the commissioner said, well, I think I need to go meet Miss Perillo in person and talk to her. So I kept waiting to get a lay-in to go see the commissioner, and I never did. And um, so I got a J-Pay in the mail from Lewis, who I call my little brother, San and Shun. San and Sun, and uh, it said, congratulations, sis, you got an FI1. Wow. And I about laid down there in the hallway and just died. I I wasn't expecting that at all. And um, so a FI1 means you're going to go home within 35 to 45 days. And um, I didn't leave until 74 days mm. because they lost my paperwork and um, typical yes and I kept thinking you know I had a really good friend that did um, 35 years in prison she made parole got dressed out to go home and everything and then they came in and said they she was being protested Wow. and dressed her back in prison clothes and so that kept going through my mind okay are mm. they going to did they change their mind? I kept calling Shannon and saying, does it still say on the computer that I have a FI1? And she says, yes, nothing's changed. Well, 74 days later, they gave me a date to go home, and uh, my son came and picked me up with Shannon and mm. Lewis. And uh, I, d- I couldn't believe it until I was actually <laughs> in that car driving away. Yeah, I bet. And it was just crazy i mean sometimes still today i can't believe that i'm out here because i never expected it but again so what's life been like since you've been out and um you know how how did it line up with your once you knew you were going home uh, i'm sure you had expectations so how did how did reality match up with your expectations and, and how's it been since you've been out you've been out about two and a half years yes um i uh wasn't expecting it, of course, but I got locked up in 1980, and the world had changed. They had self, ouch, they had cell phones, and the cat uh, just scratched her. And feisty. Computers and is that Carla Faye or is that Tucker? That is Carla Faye, and she acts just Get like Carla Faye. Get over here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but the world had changed. I knew nothing about technology. My son bought me a cell phone, an iPhone, which I didn't know nothing about <laughs> phones. And then he bought me a laptop. He got me a, a little refrigerator to go in my room, a microwave, a coffee maker, all of this stuff. And I didn't know how to use it. <laughs> so Lewis was very helpful. Shannon and Lewis were very, very helpful when I first came home. I mean, everything that I experienced, these people were amazing and patient. And I was on a leg monitor as well as a GPS box where yeah. I couldn't leave the house without having it on my schedule. And I had a certain time to be there and a certain time to be home. And uh, Do you feel like that held you back in any way, shape, or form from becoming more of a productive citizen? I think that it was hard because I couldn't go to anybody's house. I couldn't go to a restaurant to eat. The first parole officer I had wouldn't even let me go out the door on the balcony of the house. Of the house. And uh, so it was everywhere I'd go, I was upstairs, my GPS home box was upstairs if I was downstairs on a, a blender the box would be going Beep. off beeping. Yeah. and uh, my pro officer would be calling what's up and I'd say I'm downstairs <laughs> it was kind of crazy because um, I was so afraid of getting violated for anything yeah uh, I had a warrant put out on my for my arrest and uh, I had to go into the hospital to have a procedure done, and they put me to sleep. Well, I had told my parole officer I was doing this, so she said to give Shannon the GPS box out in the waiting room, and if it went off, just to press the acknowledge button, which she did, and it went off three times. Well, I went to see parole. Two days after I got out of the hospital and my pro officer said, now don't get upset, don't worry, it's going to be pulled. The governor's office is on us because why is this ex-death row inmate have a warrant out for her arrest? And um, they said that the command center tried to call my phone and I didn't answer it. Mm. I was under anesthesia. Yeah. How was I going to answer it? <laughs> right. So they put a warrant out for my arrest, which they did pull. Um, but this was on a Thursday, and they didn't pull the warrant till Monday. So I could have been arrested yeah, at any point. Yeah, if you'd have been out, yeah. And um, so it was kind of scary. I didn't want to go back to prison for stupid stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'm so um, on this parole thing. I don't go spend the night somewhere without letting my pro officer no I'm going to be somewhere somewhere for this weekend or um, I can't leave the state of Texas so right but if I go to Temple to stay at Linda's uh, ranch or something for Discipleship Unlimited I let them know um, I was on real strict high level uh, parole when I the first couple years so just recently, they dropped me down to minimum, so, so I good. see my pro officer like every two months. That's awesome. Um, I have a phone call with them. I barely go into the office if they call me and tell me I'm on a random UA list. I go straight in and do it. 
all my fees are constantly paid up and uh, so I, I've never been in trouble I'm really trying to do this and hopefully maybe after I'm out for five years I can apply for a early release yeah, absolutely to get off parole I believe it I believe I'm, we're joining our faith with yours yeah I'm really hoping Shannon's gonna help me do that yeah we think it, we think it can be done that's all right the cat's just <laughs> cat's uh playing with the tv tray that the mic is on so he's loosening up we're hearing some rumbling she's but, a uh, monster carla fay carla fay <laughs> she's such a cute cat we need to get a picture of all y'all with the cats and my mom yeah. um so what what just what has having a relationship with jesus meant for you through all of this what 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 is Oh my that, God. That relationship done for you? You know, my beginning uh, with my relationship with God was, you know, kind of hard because I, I didn't, um, you know, I have been in so much trouble my whole life. Since I was nine years old and got taken from my dad, I've been in and out of prisons and jails and foster homes and recovery. Uh, programs and uh, just kind of been a a runner my whole life and so um, you know you go to jail and you pray God get me out of this and I'll never do it again and yeah. and you go right back out there in the same day you're doing the same stuff you know that was my relationship with Christ growing up you know and um, making promises that I couldn't keep or making promises just to get what I wanted and so until I really gave my life to the Lord and opened my heart for his change in me um, I was <coughs> always playing games <coughs> so um, I used to, when they executed Carla who Carla was so close to God and I felt like if anybody should ever get off death row, it should have been Carla. And um, I was always in the background still thinking I was the rebel, you know, like I was too bad for anything. And But what I've realized is that God knows our hearts yeah. and he knows our struggles. Yeah. And... I remember when I had that execution date and I would be praying, you know, for God to help me walk into that room and get strapped to that gurney and just go meet him to face to face. Um, the hardest thing for me during that period was that the media um, reports your last words, your last meals, your last breath. and. Not everybody knows the time, the place, and the how <laughs> of how they're going to die. Yeah. And so I just kept praying that God would help me through that. I, I was so tired of that emotional roller coaster in my life of just one court would give me hope, the next court would knock me down. And so I just had to learn to leave it at the feet of Jesus and know so that he 
was going to bring me through whatever I was going to go through. Amen. And just have that peace. And sometimes as a sometimes as a human being, it's hard. It's okay. Uh, but I had to realize, you know, that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was sweating drops of blood and praying, Father, let this cup cup pass. Yeah, from take me. it away from me. Yeah. He was in human form at that moment, and he was feeling the fear and the frustration and everything that we go through here on earth, and so that let me know it was okay. Whatever I was feeling, whatever fears I had of the unknown or the process or the actual whatever was going to happen, it was okay because he knew and he understood and he was going to help me through that. And so That's so good. I believe that I'm still here today because God has a reason. Amen. And just like in Jeremiah 29, God has a plan for our life. And we don't know what that plan is, but he does. Yeah. And so whatever he brings me through I've given my testimony at a lot of uh, Celebrate Recoveries out here in the world. And at first I was very shy and not real good at talking in front of people. But I prayed and God just opened my story because he knew that somehow my story might prevent somebody from walking down that same road. Or let them see what walking down that road can lead to and maybe um, preventing it. So I just so good. want me to be open to doing whatever I can do to help those who are still struggling. Those I left behind, I feel like a piece of my heart is still right there on death row and in those prisons. Um, I'm waiting on a letter of approval to go back into the prisons Amen. with Discipleship Unlimited and uh, Mike Barber Ministries and different ministries that go in there. I would like mm-hmm. to go in and just give those people hope. Amen. You know? And I tell people all the time on death row, where there's life, there's hope. Laws change, people change, and you just got to stay open and just trust God that he's going to bring you through whatever you need to go through and that he's got a reason for you going through it and uh, like i said earlier i never thought i'd ever get out of prison but i am and i just want to make the best of what i have left in my life of just serving god and letting people see that um i'm here because god wants me here amen and, uh, so before we go, uh, this is actually airing in prison and jails all across the nation, including Texas now. They're not in every prison unit in Texas, but they're starting to slowly roll it out. I think they're in 10 or 20 units now. Right. So I would like for you you know, to give people, yes, people out here, they're going to hear your story. They're going to be impacted. They're going to they're be encouraged and have hope too. But there's inmates, male and female, all across this nation that are going to be hearing your story. Uh, some of them in there for two or three years. Some of them may be doing life like you did. 
speak something to them and over them that just will encourage them and lift them up before we go? I just really want to say that it's so important to get involved in prison activities that are there to help you, like Bridges to Life, Truth Be Told, um, different ministries like the um, Celebrate Recovery and different things that are going on in there that are for you to do self self-help if you leave it up to the system to help you you're never going to get it that's true you have to reach out and try to help yourself um while i was if they have faith-based dorms get involved in those faith-based dorms start faith-based studies on your own with different people stay connected and lift each other up and we're going to go through hard times in there and it's so important that we just help one another. One of the things that I did when I got off death row and went into population was I just tried to do whatever I could that was going to give me more knowledge and uh, help myself. And so I became a peer educator for eight years. I was educating uh population people on different diseases and HIV and hep C and staph infection which is very big in prisons and how to protect yourself against that and then I went into that faith-based dorm and then I got involved in the dog program where I was training service dogs Patriot Patriot Paws yes Patriot (laughs) Paws for disabled veterans that needed mobility assistance or was dealing with PTSD or TBI or whatever. But it was such an amazing feeling to give life back to these people that fought for our lives. And to, um, I remember there was a one one guy that when he came home, he had such severe PTSD, he stayed in the closet all the time. And when he got this dog, it opened a whole new world to him, you know, because we train these dogs for situations like that. And when the, the man was getting the dog, his little girl got up on the podium and said, thank you so much for giving me my daddy back. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. it's, it's life-changing yeah. to see um, what these dogs can do. And they are amazing dogs. They can do get bottles out of the refrigerator, help make your bed, help you put your shoes and Some socks on. Some of them can on. even pray. Yeah, the, we teach them to pray and to wave. And, um, you need you need a praying dog, Mom? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to bring Harley down here and let you train Harley. Okay. But it's just amazing to get involved mm-hmm. in stuff like that. And it's not only helping other people, but it's helping you. You know, I came home, and now I know how to train dogs. I know the different body languages of dogs and um, what they can do for other people's lives. So I would just say get involved in things that are self-help for you. That's so good. But also for other people. Yeah, that's good. Mom, do you have anything to say to people that might be wondering if going into prisons is right for them? I mean, I'm sure you probably had some, I mean, I, I don't know if I was even living with the Lord at the time when you were going in, but... 
Were you, you know, did Pop say, did Pop say, hey, I don't want you going into prison, or did people think you were crazy? Were you scared the first time? I know when I took Jessamy in, she, she, she had some fears and some doubts and some, you know, what did you feel like, and what can you speak into somebody else's life that, you know, uh, is wondering, is, is going into prison as a volunteer right for me? Well, I think it's, I think it would probably be right for anybody that had an open heart and, and a love for people um, and a true willing to want to help, you know, help other people. Uh, I can honestly say that I was never afraid. It was something I looked forward to every time. I, From the very first time I went in, I was, and I remember hearing the, the gates, you know, shut behind me, and I just kind of looked around, you know, they really shut. <laughs> yeah, they really shut. And, uh, but I never was afraid, but it was just such a joy. I mean, everyone we ever visited, uh, I, and I was so, I was so um, ignorant, I guess, when the first time I went in, or one of the first times, well, we, they had us on a Saturday evening and they hardly ever did that you hardly were ever allowed after four o'clock on saturday i think that was the time but uh this particular time they said you're invited y'all are invited to stay for dinner and so we whoever we were visiting with that day our little group of uh you know the little counselors yeah no the prisoners oh the inmates inmates um well that's who we ate dinner with so i I was eating dinner with these and and this one girl said oh they always fix something really good when the visitors are here yeah Yeah, that's true that's so true (laughs) and that night we had scrambled eggs and um we had ham and big old slices of ham and gravy and biscuits and it really was good but uh i said uh when when we sat down well i said um I had this big old piece of ham, so I was getting ready to eat my ham. I said, I said, do you, one of y'all have a knife? They didn't give me a knife. <laughs> and they, they started laughing, and they looked at me, and they said, they kind of frown on giving us knives in here. Yeah. And yeah. I found out later that, that that particular girl, that was, well, I won't go into her crime, but but that uh, knives were involved. And uh, so, but it's just, I mean, that. I've never, I never met an inmate that I really didn't love, or I never saw anyone that was really mean to me, or you know, or, or you know, and I know, you know, a lot of times when you go into the women's prison, you think a lot of them are men because of the way they wear their haircuts and everything, and and I and I was looking for a chair one time, and I said, uh, I said, could you ask him if he could if he'd give me that chair? And she said, him, <laughs> you know, and and it was one of the ladies with a real short haircut, but uh, but if you if you are ever invited or have opportunity to go into a prison, just go. I mean, just they're just people like you that have made some kind of mistake. And uh, by the grace of God, that's not you. You're not Amen. there. But uh, for whatever reason, if you get an opportunity, go in. It'll be one of the blessings of your life. And, and you'll never, ever forget it. And you'll never, ever do anything to, to match it. Um, I know being here with Pam today, it's just uh, like when we visited her in death row, she had no clue. She didn't think then that she thought 
you know, she was going to the death row. And uh, and to sit here in her living room of her darling, darling little apartment, apartment that she has, yeah. just, she has just gone all out. And we have a fireplace going on the TV. Yep. <laughs> Netflix fire. And we have snow globes. And we just have, I mean, it's just been a wonderful Got opportunity. Got her front yard and porch all decorated. Absolutely. It's beautiful. And Pam, thank you for allowing us to come. Thank you. Thank you for really your story, Pam. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in there, that the reason you kept getting denied parole uh, really, really is the essential, um, is the heart of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You said that our, our society, our, our government, you know, said because of the nature of your crime, and, and what else did you say? The past criminal. The past criminal history and the nature of your crime, we're going to deny you parole. And you said, you, you made it very clear, those two things were never going to change. Never. What's in the past, you can't change, so it's going to always have happened. The nature of it's not going to change. The history of it's not going to change. So what? What? When does it really change? You know, like when do they realize that this person has changed? And I don't think even after they give parole, that they believe we're changed people. No. You know, they really don't. They still look at us as as uh, alcoholics, DWI people, murderers, drug addicts. They still always will hold our past and the nature of our past against us. And that's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> He he doesn't he doesn't he, he he likes to use our past as leverage to advance the kingdom of God through testimony mm-hmm. of His mercy and His grace, and that's what I society and our government wants to use our past to hold us back, but Jesus wants to use our past to launch us forward right. into the kingdom, and that's what we say at Background Check Podcast. Your past shouldn't hold you back; it should pay you back. And every time you get to share your story somewhere, your past is paying you back. Right. You know, and so I want to thank you, Mom. Thanks for coming, taking the trip with me. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story. And uh, is there anything else you want to share? Say hi to anybody or uh, anything before we go? I just want you all to just keep focus on Jesus and know it doesn't matter what those guards think about you. That's or, right. You know, when those volunteers come in, they're giving up their time. And only because they love you and they want to reach out to you. And uh, I can't even tell you the amazing relationships I've acquired through those different ministries that came in um, and that I'm still in contact with today. And just plug in, you know. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you. It's what you think about yourself and what God thinks about you. And nothing else matters. How can our listeners keep you in prayer? Just keep praying that I um, continue on my journey that God has me on and that I'm I'm doing it for his kingdom. And I I can't even tell you what it feels like to live out here by myself. I've never lived alone in my life. Um, Do you still wear shower shoes in the shower? No. Because you don't need to, right? <laughs> I take baths, too. There you I go. haven't had there in a go. bathtub. <laughs> but That's awesome. Yeah. I love my little house. It's, I just it's love beautiful. it. It's darling. It's and, beautiful. Um, my yard and, and just just it's stay great. plugged in and Amen. remember that God has a purpose and a plan, and he's working on it. Just give him time. Amen. Thanks again for being here. Thank you, Mom, for joining us. Pleasure. All right. We'll see you all. Okay. Bye. Okay, man, I could talk forever on some final thoughts. 
on this episode, but I'm I'm not going to talk forever. But I I, I want to highlight a couple things that Pam said, and that we talked about. She said that she didn't think she was ever going to get out because the reasons they were denying her parole were criminal history, past criminal history, and nature of offense. And those two things will never change. We can't change the past and undo the criminal offense. We can't undo the, 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 the nature of the crime. And we can't undo the past. So, and she honestly thought because of that, and honestly, if that's what they're going by, then they should have never let her out. They should have never let me out, you know, because of the nature of my crimes, which were all DWIs in my past criminal history. So there's definitely some work to do on the, the, the rubric of parole acceptance and denial. But, um, but the good thing about it is that Jesus doesn't hold our past against us. He knows the natures, the nature of all of our crimes. He knows the nature of all of our sin and he knows our past sinful history. Yet he still says in contradiction to society and churches and, and some, even, even some of our family, he still says, I know you, I fully know you, but I still fully love you and fully apply my grace and mercy to your life. And when we repent and ask Jesus to come into our heart and live as our Lord and Savior like she did in 19, uh, I think it was 80, you know, I mean, how else could you explain somebody living that long, you know, but even the stress of waiting to die. I mean, you heard she got sentenced to death twice <laughs> and she was just ready. She was praying, Lord, give me the strength to, to, to get strapped to that gurney and, and meet you face to face. You know, but God had other plans for her. And I love, I love hearing my mom talk about Pam and, and her visits with Pam and Carla Faye and, and uh, Francis and Betty. And I'm just, it's incredible. I, I hope you enjoyed this interview and I hope you enjoyed the story um, of Jesus in Pam's life. And, uh, and if, listen, being a volunteer in prison, whether it's just going in once, once or every so often with a ministry like Mike Barber or Bill Glass, um, or you want to go and start your own prison ministry where you go in weekly or monthly, you know, I, it's, it's all worth it. It's all worth it because either way you're going to bless somebody inside prison or they're going to bless you. <laughs> you for real. I mean, I haven't met a volunteer yet that, that, that goes in that says they weren't blessed by the inmates, but I want to pray over, uh, pray over Pam and, uh, and my mom and, all you that are inside prison, inside jails, and even outside uh, here in the world that maybe find yourself in a, a prison, emotional prison, um, psych, psycho, psychological prison, financial prison, whatever it is, you may think that because of your financial past and the nature of your financial sin, you, you may never be debt-free. That's a lie. You may think because of your, um, your, your, your past uh, criminal past or a past in your childhood that you had nothing to do with sexual abuse or whatever, that you'll never be able to do this. That's a lie. You'll never be able to have joy because of your past depression. That's a lie. You'll never be able to have a relationship and be intimate with someone because of your sexual abuse past. That's a lie. 
you may think like my, like me, that you may never be able to have a special significant other. Like I did, I, I did not deserve just to be my wife because of my, my sexual past. That was a lie. So this Christmas and this new year's, I want you to apply what God gave us through his, through the birth of his son, Jesus Christ to your life and walk in that resurrection power, the power to save through him coming and the power to resurrect by him raising from the dead. And you got this, whether you've been in prison for two years or 39 years, like Pam, you can be set free. Listen, I'm going to put, um, like I said, the name of her book is Salvation on Death Row, the Pam Perillo story. Uh, I'm going to put some pictures on the website, the show page, so go check them out. And uh, pictures of her cat, Carla Faye and Tucker. And I hope you have some fun with that. But let me pray over Pam. Let's pray over Pam together. If you're sitting in your cell or wherever you are, let's just join with me and pray over Pam. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for Pam. And I thank you for what she represents in the kingdom of God. She represents grace, mercy, uh, so much grace and so much mercy from you, Lord. Even when society tries to cut off that grace and mercy, you find a way to make it happen. And we thank you for that. We thank you for uh, people uh, like like Shannon uh, and I can't, Shannon and, and her friends that she went to live with, Lord volunteers and lawyers and thank you for people the the pro bono lawyers that that poured into pam's case and uh, got it overturned so she could meet my mom one day thank you that two days before she was set to die you you came in and put a stay of execution you said no and right now we come against any death any spiritual death physical death prematurely of what you have in plan and pay in pl- uh, place for the for those people we thank you, Lord, for your un, unlimited grace and mercy. And I know it has no limits because of what I've been through and what I've done. So I lift every, I lift every listener up to you right now. We, we, we pray for Pam. We pray for her, her physical body. We also pray for her relationships. We pray for her speaking engagements. We pray that you just open doors for her, even at the age that she's at, to be able to touch people's lives for the kingdom. And we lift up my mom. And who represents all the volunteers that, that go in, maybe volunteers that haven't gone in yet that are trying to figure out if they should, if it's worth it. We lift up my mom and her life and her body and everything, and we pray blessings over them. And Lord, we just thank you for everyone listening, wherever they are. We lift them up to you. And we, we, we speak grace and mercy, your grace and your mercy, the same one that you applied to Pam over their lives. Give them what they need for their breakthrough in Jesus' name. All right. Thanks, guys. It's good to be back. Uh, We'll probably have one more maybe. I may do one in January, you know, after my birthday, January 21st. Um, But we'll we'll start up the weekly episodes again in uh, in February. You're not going to want to miss it. There are going to be some good stories. So spread the word. Uh, You know, if you want to share it, share the podcast with people. If you want to go on Apple and give us a review, it's okay if you don't. I, I, I don't live by those, but uh, but it does it does help us know that people are listening. And if you're in prison or jail and you want to write us and let us know the podcast impacted you, a certain episode, or if uh, for some reason it hasn't updated, again, there's not going to be that many right now, but once we uh, 
February 1st hits, uh, we'll release a new episode every Friday at noon. So love y'all. I believe in y'all. Happy New Year. 2022 is going to be the best year of your life. You hear me? Don't let anything get in the way of make it, no matter what happens to you, good or bad. Some bad crap can happen to you in 2022, and it can still be the best year of your life. I believe that for you. All right, we'll see y'all on the next episode. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Background Check Podcast, brought to you by Forgiven Felons, helping people with a past realize their future. For more information, please visit ForgivenFelons.org. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss the latest episode. I'm J.D. Gum, and this has been Background Check.